Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, September 15th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The latest trend in pharmaceutical advertising stretches the definition of ask your doctor if this treatment is right for you. Stats' Katie Palmer joins us to explain the controversy over telehealth prescribing. We also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including a Bellwether Biotech IPO, the cooling of some summer merger rumors, and J.P. Morgan 2023. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley. Thanks for listening. You've probably heard of the mRNA technology that has been used to make vaccines for COVID-19. But did you know that there are breakthroughs on the horizon to put mRNA to work against a host of other diseases? Tracy Humphreys, a scientist and marketer from Cytiva, is here to tell us more. Thanks, Angus. mRNA is showing tremendous potential to cure diseases like autoimmune and neurological disorders and even deadly pancreatic cancers. Visit Cytiva.com forward slash advanced therapeutics to learn how we're working with biopharma companies to adjust their manufacturing strategies and bring this exciting technology to patients. That's Cytiva, C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. So, Allison, uh, President Biden is going to spend some money on biotech, biotech manufacturing. Uh, what did he sign this week? Yeah. So President Biden was here in Boston on Monday, mostly to talk about his his cancer moonshot project. But he also mentioned, you know, during his his speech, this executive order that he signed on Monday called the Biotechnology and Biomanufacturing Initiative. And, you know, the gist is that the government is going to invest more than $2 billion in both public and private sector programs. They're all focused on, you know, producing medicines and some other things like biofuels and, you know, new, um, you know, uh, synthetic materials. And the underlying kind of goal being to make the biopharma industry and the biotech industry less reliant on, you know, contract manufacturers in places like China. And, you know, the details for right now, we were getting some details. There are a couple of states where they're specifically looking to build up like regional manufacturing, like think New Hampshire, Oregon, Virginia, but there's still a lot to be figured out. I mean, we know that each type of drug has its own production challenges. And what role some of the like existing drug industry groups are going to be playing is still being figured out. You know, I talked to the CEO of Resilience uh, earlier in the week, and, you know, he told me that they hadn't heard about this executive order in advance. Resilience being this big arch backed uh, initiative to really like overhaul biotech manufacturing. Um, they hadn't heard about this. You know, they were very excited about it and said it's very welcome. Um, and then notably, the the administration also kind of tapped the synthetic biology field, kind of tapped them on the shoulder to help this effort um, and actually had one of the founders of Ginkgo Bioworks 
everybody's favorite stock ticker uh, <laughs> company at the White House Wednesday to talk about this plan unveiling. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, two billion dollars is, in an objective sense, a large number of dollars. But in in the scope of how much it costs to build up infrastructure for something like biotech manufacturing, it isn't that much. And it's notable, I think, as you pointed out in your story, that a similar White House effort focused on semiconductors allocated, I think, about 25 times as much money. I know that's, yeah. you know, there, there's different dynamics there. And with respect to the United States competitiveness with particularly China, but it is kind of worth considering that this is an initiative that, that clearly reflects concern and thought from the White House, but it's not like this is a banner top of mind issue based on that dollar amount. Yeah, that that other executive order that you referenced um, is focused on like the semiconductor and memory chip industries. And they got $54 billion pledged to that effort to kind of help with R&D and production. Um, you know, what I've been hurt, like hearing this is this $2 billion may just be the first step. HHS has been like tasked with kind of like sitting down and assessing like what the specific like near term, you know, and like long term priorities are, particularly when it comes to like, you know, specific drug production um, and kind of coming back in about 180 days with a report of, of their priorities, um, you know, and I, I'm anticipating and people are kind of anticipating that like cancer, you know, therapy production is going to be a big part of that report, you know, that's obviously a priority for the Biden administration. Um, but there's also like some chatter about like, you know, different ways to approach gene therapy manufacturing, cutting costs down there. And obviously, you know, um, pandemic preparedness uh, and getting ready for, you know, potentially be needing to create another large dose of vaccines, which I hope doesn't happen, fingers crossed, um, for a new, you know, virus is is top of people's minds. But no, you're absolutely right. Like $2 billion, while it's more money than I will ever see in my lifetime, is is it's a smaller start than this kind of similar order got a few months ago. All right. So moving on, Damien, there were three letters uh, that surfaced this week, but we haven't heard in a while. And those letters are I, P and O. Tell us about Third Harmonic. That's right. So, I mean, one of the casualties of biotech's correction, crash, retrenchment, whatever word you want to use is a complete collapse of the IPO market. There were in excess of 100 IPOs in 2021, raising tens of billions of dollars in 2022, however, that number has been, depending on how you count biotech companies, about six. But this week, it ticked over to seven, thanks to a company called Third Harmonic Bio, which uh, priced an offering, raised $185 million, and priced its shares at $17 a share, which was in the the mid-range of uh, or the midpoint of the range that the company had set out, which, you know, this is, it should go without saying, a pretty closely watched IPO. This isn't necessarily like a banner private company, but just by virtue of being the brave tester of the waters after what has been a pretty brutal climate for these companies. So hitting the midpoint, that's a positive. I think they also offered more shares than they had initially intended in order to raise more money, which arguably also is a positive because that means someone wanted to buy them. Um, but you know, it remains early days, and and I wouldn't want to put too much stock into a single company, which isn't necessarily like a bellwether for the entire industry. But this is among the kind of like green shoots that we've discussed over the summer of biotech not recovering to where it was last year, but at least maybe staunching some of the bleeding that we saw earlier this year. 
yeah, just them getting out the door is probably a good thing and maybe an encouraging sign that we'll see some more IPOs. Uh, you know, we haven't seen the stock trade yet. As we were recording the podcast this morning, the stock had not opened for trading. So we'll see, you know, how it how it trades over the next few days and weeks. You know, the other thing I would mention is, you know, this is a VC-backed company, as as most biotech companies are. Um, Atlas Ventures, the, uh, the Cambridge-based VC firm, uh, is the majority owner or the, the largest shareholder in, in the company. Uh, Orbimed's in there, RA, RA Capital, is in there. And so I think one thing that will be interesting to see, again, we'll know a little bit more in the coming days, is, is exactly who bought this deal, right? I mean, is this, is this an instance where, uh, you know, the insiders, the, the, the private VC companies that, uh, that backed this company initially, are they the ones that basically bought all of the shares in the IPO? Or did this actually go out and you saw some more general interest or, you know, other interest from other healthcare-focused funds uh, that wanted to buy them? And I think that's, a, that's an important distinction because I think you know we'll truly see sort of a more healthy IPO market when you see deals go out where you know there is a broader interest in owning the shares on the IPO and not just supported by insiders. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I was speaking to one VC earlier this week, and we were talking about this IPO, and their perspective was more of the "we we really need this to work out" perspective. <laughs> um, you can sense from the VC side that they are missing the IPO market uh, and you know really want to see a return. But the rest of the public market, I think, is a little bit you know to be determined how much of an appetite there is there. Well, on a different note, we got some news, um, some KRAS data news this week. Yeah, we had mentioned this last week, and, and I have to actually note uh, a correction. Last week, we were talking about Lumacris, which is the Amgen KRAS targeting lung cancer drug. I think we had mentioned that that it was from Merck. It's not from Merck. It's from Amgen. So we apologize for that error. But but Allison, you're right. Uh, we had some data from uh, pretty important data from a confirmatory clinical trial that Amgen had conducted in lung cancer with their drug Lumacris, and the data were not so great. I guess is the way I would describe them. Um, you know, they did show a small benefit uh, on tumor progression um, of about 1.1 months over a standard chemotherapy. But maybe just as importantly, you know, they looked at survival in the study and there was no difference uh, from a from a statistical standpoint, there was no difference in survival between Lumacris and chemotherapy. Actually, um, numerically, there was a tiny three-week uh, benefit for the chemotherapy arm of the study over Lumacris. So that you know, when I talked to uh, oncologists uh, who treat lung cancer patients, they were disappointed in these data. One told me that you know that, that there was a there was obviously going to be a there was a expectation that that this drug Lumacris um, was going to beat uh, standard chemotherapy uh, on survival and at least show a numerical trend, and it didn't do that. And so it's um you know it's a little bit of a setback uh, for this drug, it, you know, which had kind of been kind of had uh, a lot of optimism and hype around it because of just the difficulty of of targeting this uh, this particular genetic mutation it's a very it's a very difficult protein uh, mutated protein to to target with drugs and you know and scientists have figured out a way to do that but yet the drug is not showing the kind of efficacy that people had hoped to see so sticking on the topic of <laughs> disappointment uh, the Summer subplot of Merck's reported interest in buying the Seattle biotech company Seagen has hit 
I guess, something of an adir. Um, just this week, for the first time, Seagen's stock price slipped below where it was trading on June 17th, which is when the Wall Street Journal first reported that Merck was interested in buying the company. It's now trading around $140. So, Notably, I think later over the summer, the journal reported that Merck's offer would be around $200 a share. So that $200 benchmark has been kind of a barometer for tests for seeing how Wall Street feels about the potential of this deal. So at the height, when it seemed like it was imminent, CGen traded at around $180, $185. Now at what is apparently the low point, it's down to $140. I don't know if that means people have given up entirely on the notion of, of this deal being done. The most recent reporting we saw, I think it was from Bloomberg a few weeks ago, was that the two companies just couldn't agree on a price. But the fact that they're in a room suggests that maybe they eventually will. Uh, apparently, the impetus for CGen's recent kind of dipping below that level was the interim CEO speaking at the Morgan Stanley conference. And I listened back to it, and it's a really innocuous question like, would you guys consider spending money on business development? And he gives a really innocuous answer of like, yes, we are a company. So that is something that we will consider. But apparently just his mentioning that was read by some number of investors as a sign that the deal talks must have cooled because why would CGen be talking about doing deals of its own if it were in the 11th hour of a negotiation with Merck? So your mileage may vary on that logic, but the stock price doesn't lie. Yeah, it feels like this deal has lost all of its luster at this point. I mean, even if it goes through... How much do you think it's going to really, you know, get people excited um, if we actually see it be announced? You know, will will the Merck stands come out and just celebrate <laughs> the the success, the ultimate, you know, success of this CGen acquisition? You know, this was a very leaky deal from from a kind of reporting standpoint, right? That we, we were sort of getting these reports, you know, and you know, props to the Wall Street Journal and others who were who are doing the reporting on this. Um, but it's kind of gotten quiet, you know, which is another thing, right? I mean, like it's just we haven't heard kind of, and there's been no stories, no new reporting on this deal for a while now. Which I, I don't know what I don't know how to interpret that, but uh, it is interesting. And as to the effects, I mean. Whether Merck acquires CGen or the you know the ultimate fate of a single company probably not that important. But I guess in sentiment terms, you know the reported the numbers that were being bounced around were in like the forty billion dollar range. So just zooming out for biotech, regardless of what the proper nouns are in terms of companies, anytime forty billion dollars is changing hands, that's perceived <laughs> as being a good thing for sentiment. If if a, a cash rich company like Merck is willing to spend that on a, not small, but on a biotech company like CGen, I think that would be perceived as being encouraging. And I guess if, in fact, the thing that is keeping it from happening and may keep it from happening ever is the two companies agreeing on a price that works for them, that's arguably bad for sentiment because it would suggest that the cash-rich pharma companies just don't see eye to eye with the biotech companies on just how much they're worth. So if you walk away from this week's podcast with nothing else, it should be that, you know, a $2 billion government program is kind of like a meh number, but $40 billion is a good number. (laughs) Now we're talking. Well, I want to turn our attention, as it seems like everybody's already turning their attention to what is, you know, in pre-pandemic times, usually a great place to talk about M&A, JP Morgan, 2023. Adam, you have been you know, scheming and, you know, scheduling uh, about our JP Morgan plans. <laughs> scheming. Yeah, I'm scheming. I don't know if I'm scheming. Yeah, maybe I'm just trying to get organized. But yeah, you're right, Allison. We, uh, it is the middle of September. And so, yeah, it's kind of time to start thinking about 
the big J.P. Morgan healthcare conference and kind of, I guess, the the sort of foundational question or the uh, that we're trying to figure out is like, are we going uh, and who is going and what kind of uh, uh, attendance we might see in San Francisco this year? Obviously, uh, because of the because of the pandemic, we have not had an in-person J.P. Morgan week for a long time. You know, there was sort of uh, was going to be one last year. And then uh, it was, as Damien and I reported back in December, uh, you know, there was that's when we had the, you know, the latest COVID outbreak and, and it was abruptly canceled and it went virtual. Um, this year, I'm pretty much 99 percent sure that there's going to be an in-person uh, event in San Francisco. So now it's kind of like. Who's going to be there? How many people are going to be there? Where are we going to stay? I, I think, Allison, you, um, you're going. You're going. You're going with me and I'm others going. at Stat uh, this year. This is your and correct me if I'm wrong, but this this might be your first J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. This might will be my first in person J.P. Morgan. Wow, I know a wow. real milestone. Now, I'm wondering. Did I miss out on the, you know, the experience of the ever crowded JP Morgan where it was so packed that you were having meetings in Macy's? Is that is that experience over for me? Yeah, that's where I'm a little I'm a little worried. Not worried, but like maybe, you know, you kind of maybe missed the peak of the JP Morgan experience. What do you think, Damien? Is 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 she see, is she seeing sort of like the uh the equivalent of going to see the Rolling Stones in 2022? Is that is that kind of what <laughs> Allison's going to experience? Right. I wonder, yeah, if J.P. Morgan is going to go the way of college newspapers and Coachella annual things where everybody harkens back to the the glory days that just happened to be when you personally were a little bit younger. But in reality, like most things, it just kind of gets worse every year. I don't know. I am curious as to see how this one plays out, because I think there is, I mean, I know there is from talking to people, a pent up desire for a gathering of this sort. I mean, we've talked Absolutely. about this in the past when complaining about all the things that are unpleasant about J.P. Morgan, that if you were to destroy it, you would just need to create a J.P. Morgan-like thing in its place because it's the start of the year. Um, it's a chatty, gossipy industry, and there is this urge to convene. And I think it being on functional in-person hiatus for two years means that that urge has only has only grown. And so, I yeah, I wonder just how crowded those hallways will be, just how expensive those chairs in various Union Square <laughs> lobbies will be. Um, it'll be interesting. Yeah, a cursory look at hotel prices uh, for the week of JPM uh, reveals many, many $1,000 a night hotels out there. So um, inflation is real. All right. So then text me your like favorite, you know, like corner of a, do they have Tate's out in San Francisco? <laughs> you know, like your blue bottle cafe, your blue bottle coffee, you know, which, where's your best hidden gem spot, you know, adjacent to the meeting location. Ask your doctor if this treatment is right for you. It's the familiar ending to thousands of TV drug ads, and at least in theory, it's the disclaimer that keeps direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising from crossing ethical boundaries. But what if you could ask not your doctor, but rather a doctor, one who happens to be available right now for a telehealth consultation? An increasing number of drug companies have embraced the powerful tool of online prescribing, which, to the telehealth companies that enable it, promises to streamline the process by which patients get diagnosed and treated. 
But to health policy experts, it's an innovation that could lead to poor care, inflated costs, and an erosion of regulatory standards. Our colleague Katie Palmer wrote a story this week in Stat on that very phenomenon, and she joins us now to talk about it. Katie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So, Katie, where did this uh, approach to advertising and prescribing come from, and, and why is it gaining steam? You know, it really seems to have come out of the general shift toward direct-to-consumer prescribing that we've been seeing gain, gain steam on the internet. A lot of the early online pharmacies focused on these so-called lifestyle drugs, hair loss, erectile dysfunction, weight loss, usually drugs that had some stigma attached. So when pharma decided to deploy the same model next to its direct-to-consumer marketing, those kind of drugs were still the low-hanging fruit, the ones patients were most likely to seek online. But in the last few years, patients have gotten a lot more comfortable with the idea of getting a whole range of prescriptions online from a doctor they don't have a pre-existing relationship with. And obviously, that adoption was accelerated by the pandemic. Even more, pharma started to need new ways to reach patients during the pandemic when they couldn't get drug rips into offices and patients weren't seeing their own physicians. So for some companies, launching a telehealth access point alongside a new drug help them drive prescriptions even when we were still in lockdown. It became much more of a business imperative. So this relies, as your story points out, on on third-party companies. And you talked to some of them with names like Upscript Health and Prescribery. How did they describe their business model, how they fit into this evolving thing? Yeah, they'd say that they build infrastructure or digital front doors for pharmaceutical companies to have their branded medications sold directly to the consumer. You know, the pharma companies themselves obviously can't employ physicians who prescribe the drugs. So these third parties provide all the infrastructure to do that. They assemble the telehealth provider networks. They sometimes provide training in the specific drug to those physicians. They integrate brand messaging into the patient onboarding and questionnaires, and even sometimes into the visit. Um, you know, sometimes in a virtual waiting room, you'll see more brand uh, advertising for the drug. And the idea is to maximize the number of patients who will click on an ad and get all the way to asking for a prescription and probably getting it. The backside of the process after the script is written is also part of the business model. You know, a lot of these drugs are new and expensive or poorly covered by insurance. So there's a good chance people won't fill the script once they get it because it's too expensive. So sometimes part of the offering is integrating manufacturer coupons, copay coupons into the checkout process or building an insurance adjudication support so consumers are even more likely to go all the way from clicking on an ad to actually filling the script. And then there's one more big plus. The pharma company gets visibility into all of that consumer health data, from the click to the prescription fulfillment, which is something they really can't get anywhere else. Wow. So this is... As like one policy expert told you, it, it feels like pharma's dream of, you know, being able to market prescription drugs like they would over the counter ones and like add in this this advertising in these virtual waiting rooms. What are some of policy experts' concerns about this model of prescribing drugs? Yeah, I mean, they voiced a lot of the same concerns that have been repeated over and over about direct to consumer advertising as a whole, um, just amplified. They worry that it'll erode the doctor-patient relationship and lead to poorer care overall. Um, they worry the visits patients have will be really cursory, focusing on just the eligibility for that single drug instead of having a broader conversation about a patient's symptoms and their best possible treatment. It could be another drug or this drug or a non-pharmaceutical intervention or nothing at all. Um, you know, one expert called it corruption of telehealth. Um you know, in the grand scheme of things, that could mean a patient wastes money or experiences side effects from a drug that isn't right for them. And if this kind of ad length telehealth disproportionately drives scripts for expensive drugs, which it 
could do because that's why all of this marketing investment is worth it, um, then it could increase overall healthcare costs and you know drive up premiums for everyone. So this comes amid increased scrutiny for direct-to-consumer telehealth prescribers, uh, you know, companies like Hims and Cerebral, which have reportedly pressured providers to boost their prescription numbers. Is it likely that the rising popularity of this model will lead to some kind of regulatory action? Yeah, I mean, that's a really tricky question. There's a lot going on in this space now because there are so many different institutions that regulate different pieces of the telehealth puzzle. Um, you know, direct-to-consumer models, whether or not they're linked to a specific drug, uh, can fall into what some people call a gray zone between federal regulation, you know, drug prescribing practices, et cetera, and state governments, which regulate the medical practice providers, the pharmacies, telehealth medical practice standards, which are just extremely variable from state to state. And then you add to that the direct-to-consumer advertising element for these models, which is regulated at the federal level. Um, you know, I've heard it suggested from some sources that, you know, it'd be great if there were comprehensive legislation of these practices taking the lead from something like the Ryan Hate Act uh, for controlled substances online prescribing, but, uh, you know, just for broader online prescribing practices. And I think there will likely be continued action of the type we've seen from the FTC and the DEA against digital health companies that have questionable practices in their view. But when it comes to comprehensive action uh, against industry-wide practices or maybe even better proactive regulation to ensure patient safety in these cases, there are so many cooks in the kitchen that it's hard to see who will be leading the charge. Well, you know, and as, as you pointed out, the, the whole function of this model is so attractive to drug makers for for all the reasons you lay out, not least of which the access to data, um, which I'm sure stokes privacy concerns among uh, some of the health policy people you talked to. I guess what I was wondering is, are the people who have raised questions and red flags about this, have they just kind of resigned to a future in which just it becomes that much more ubiquitous because of the sort of like regulatory bramble you described and the fact that for at least all the stakeholders involved, it's just win-win all the way down that is profitable and useful? That is kind of the sense that I've heard so far, frankly. I mean, I haven't talked to everybody, but the the consensus from the experts I spoke to was, you know, the sense of inevitability, that it is just such a powerful model that it is destined for success and for expansion, at least in the short term. You know, the third-party platforms obviously have an interest in saying that too, but I heard that from the people who were the most critical of this model and its potential impacts on patient care as well. Um, you know, as you say, given the value of the data that can be aggregated and the prescription conversions that Pharma can see by integrating telehealth. Um, so we'll just have to see what that means for patients. Well, thank you, Katie, for joining us and, and going over all of this. We look forward to hearing how this all plays out in the months and years to come. Me too. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether or not you are going to San Francisco for J.P. Morgan. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. We'll see you next week.